amen. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Antioch Community Church. So good to see you. It's so good to, to worship with you here in this house as we continue to just make space for God to move in our lives. My name's Andy. I'm the executive pastor here. And it's my honor to help lead us this morning as, as we really, as we bring our hearts before the Lord and invite God to, to speak to us. That's really what we want to do every week when we gather together is, God, here is my life. Here is my heart. As we dive into your word, please speak to me, change me, shape me, correct me, move me in the way that you want me to go and give me a heart that would say yes in response. And that actually dovetails very nicely with the, the series that we've been in, which is called The Rhythm of Revival. And that's really our desire is to stay in tempo, stay in step, stay in rhythm with what God is doing, how he's leading us, how he's moving among us so that we would be responsive to him and ultimately experience the reviving of our hearts that he wants to bring. Last week, Travis did a great job of leading us through 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And we looked at King Josiah and his humility of heart. And namely, it actually described him as having a responsive heart a responsive heart. And really, I think that's a great setup for what we are going to do here this morning because I, I believe God has a word of, of challenge for us. He has a, a word in some ways of correction for us and patient for us. With humility and responsiveness of heart so that we can say yes to the thing that God is leading us into. I also wanted to share, if you have been feeling stirred by what God has been doing here among us. If you personally are, are feeling envisioned for revival and you want to be a part of praying for that, we have prayer going on on Wednesday mornings at 6 a.m. in the prayer room. We'd love for you to, to join us and join with others who are contending for um, the work of God to be accomplished in and through our community. A few months ago, I, I came across a, uh, a story that I found really intriguing. It's something that happened back in 2005 when a couple art collectors came across uh, what they thought was a rendition of uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Salvador Mundi. And it's one of um, his uh, most uh, famous paintings. And when they found it, it did not, like, it did not look like the, the picture that you see on the screen. Rather, it had uh, been veiled over because of uh, overpaintings and varnish that happened over time. It also had collected a lot of dirt and grime over the years. And so when they found it, they thought it was not a work of da Vinci, but rather one of his followers' followers, still being a significant piece of art. Uh, they, they purchased it for around $10,000 U.S., they took the painting. They really wanted to uncover its origins, and so they did some exploration, and they started to, to, to kind of peel away the varnish that had been on um, the, on the painting. They tried to clean it up, really get back to the original work of art that was created. And in doing this, they, as well as um, uh, art, a few other conservators and, and art preservers that they had kind of called under their team, they began to wonder if this was not a, a painting that was a rendition or one of da Vinci's followers' followers, but it actually was the work of da Vinci himself. And one of the, the things they, know, they knew about da Vinci was that he was a, a notorious perfectionist. And as you can see, uh, Christ's right hand of blessing is kind of held up like this. As they explored this painting, they noticed that they could see that the thumb was originally in a different position and that it had, had been moved. And that was very much something that da Vinci himself would do. If somebody was making a copy of it, it'd be very unlikely that they would want to copy that same change of artistic decision. 
And so they begin looking further into this, and then they, they started to get some more art historians involved, and they got some uh, students of Da Vinci himself, uh, and not, not himself, but they, this, those who had studied the works of Da Vinci, and they actually, over several years, came to the conclusion that this was indeed an original work of art. And so it was purchased originally at this auction in 2005. It was, uh, it was then cleaned up, restored, reclaimed, and brought back to its rightful place in, in, in the art world as an original piece. And then it was brought back to auction once again. This time did not sell for $10,000. This time sold for over $450 million, which is the highest price paid for a piece of, work, piece of art in all of history. And as I was reading this story, there was a, a couple things that, that stood out to me that I think are relevant for us here today. One is this, the story is about the intentional pursuit of recovering and reclaiming something authentic that had been lost in obscurity and veiled over because of varnish and distortions. Second thing is careful study and intimate knowledge of the creator of the artist was required in order to distinguish that which is original from that which was a copy or something secondhand. And finally, something, the original was far more valuable than, than the copy. You're like, okay, well, what does that have to do with us here today? Well, I believe that actually, this is actually setting the stage for what God wants to lead us into here this morning. I believe as we were going through this series of, of rhythm of revival, God, we wanna stay in step with what you're doing. I believe that what God wants to do is actually to restore unto us a, a preference, a desire for the original as opposed to counterfeits. I believe that God wants to restore unto us a, deeper, a deep knowledge and intimacy with him and knowing him as our creator and our maker so that we can identify the, the empty promises and the alternatives that present themselves to us and very quickly be able to identify that is fake and this is real. I'm saying no to that. I'm saying yes to this. And ultimately, I believe God wants to re bring us back and recapture our hearts of worship where we worship him and exalt him as most supreme and thus uh, attribute proper value to our creator high above anyone or anything else. And that is where we pick up again in, in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 34 as, as we were in last week. And, and that's what we see Josiah leading his people into. We see is leading his, his people back into this, this time, this era of worship where, where the one true God is, being, is utmost of, of a, utmost importance to him, utmost focus of him and where he wants to give his wholehearted affection and devotion. And he wants to lead his people in turning away from counterfeits to turning away from the empty promises that, that his forefathers had given themselves to. And we see that Josiah's responsiveness of heart, his humility of heart, it was not just an internal feeling. It wasn't just something that, that it was like, oh, that ooey-gooey feeling on the inside. Rather, he did something about his responsiveness. He did something in responding to God's initiation. And I want us to look at it in, in uh, chapter 34 of Second Chronicles, verses 3 through 7. This is what it says. It says, In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and the idols. 
These he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. And then he went back to Jerusalem. Josiah's soft heart, his tender heart, his responsive heart manifested and expressed itself in something that was very violent and very aggressive. He was not, he was not toying around and gingerly dealing with idols. He was going full beast mode on these idols and getting rid of them and saying, I don't even want a hint of any hint of them in this territory, in this land, not under my rulership and not under my reign. He was very aggressive and tenacious in how he, d he dealt with anything that would, any stumbling block, anything that, that would stand in the way of against, against true and proper worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And I believe for us here this morning, we can look at it as, as example. And as we stay in rhythm of revival, we can recognize that very much so of, of uh, having a revived heart is expressed and manifested in us doing away with idols in our lives aggressively, not gingerly, not slowly, but quickly. And everywhere they can be found, we do away with them. That is very much part of having a revived heart before God. And so here this morning, I, we, uh, we believe what God is leading us into is a time of, of recognizing, identifying the fact that there is, even though we don't necessarily have little figurines and statues or poles uh, that are given to, in terms of idolatrous worship, there are idols all around us that are vying for our attention and our affection and our allegiance. And as God is reviving our hearts, it is our responsibility with a responsiveness towards him to do away with them and say, we will, we will push those away. We will violently rid them from our lives and we will give ourselves fully to do devotion and obedience to him and to him alone. And for us to understand really the, um, the significance of idolatry as a theme throughout the, 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 the biblical narrative, for us to understand why idolatry and ridding of it was very much part of the revivals of old and the, uh, the revivals of the Old Testament, I want to rewind a little bit and go back to earlier, earlier parts of Scripture where we see God establish his relationship with his people and we see the specific commands he gave his people in terms of defining what the relationship with him was supposed to look like. You see, God is a very relational God. Some may think, okay, well, the God of the Old Testament is one way. The God of the New Testament is more the, is more the lovey-dovey relation, relationship uh, God. The God of the Old Testament is a God of anger and wrath. But the truth is that God has not changed. He is not different old to new. He is always, always has been and always will be a God who wants relationship with his people. He describes himself as a father in relational terms. And he's, the way he describes leading his people, Israel, through the wilderness is as a father carries his son in between his shoulders against his bosom. That's a very intimate and dear way for him to describe the way he wants to, to care for his people. He describes himself as a shepherd and wants his leaders to be like shepherds who lovingly guide and direct the lives of, of his people as they, as they follow him and, and navigate um, as they navigated the wilderness and ultimately as they moved their way towards the promised land. And one of, the, one of the ways God describes himself that we see again and again throughout the Bible is that he describes himself as our husband, as, as our husband, and that we are his bride. 
that we are the one that he cherishes and that he delights in and desires and adores. And he is asking then, in, in, this, in the context of a marital relationship, for us to have fidelity towards him, for us to have loyalty towards him, to, for us to give ourselves fully to, to honoring him and loving him and, and, and obeying him as, as, as you would want to see in any marriage relationship where there's a mutual faithfulness, there's a mutual givenness to one another. And God calls Israel out of Egypt and he, and he establishes his covenant with them. And when he, he establishes his covenant, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And, and I'm actually going to line out for you and describe for you what I expect uh, on your, and here's what I'm going to be for you. And this is what I expect from you. This is what I want your faithfulness uh, towards me to look like. And, and we actually see that you know, there are over 600 commands given in, in the, the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch. And those can be really summarized by the, the Ten Commandments. And I want to read uh, the first one, which, which uh, says this, because it's here that we see that preeminent across all the commands is that we would worship God and God alone. Verses, uh, Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 4, this is what it says. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them and worship them. I am the Lord, he declares. I am the Lord. I am the one who saved you. I'm the one who rescues you. I'm the one who delivers you. I'm the one who provides for you. I'm the one who goes with you. I am the Lord. Do not, do not, do not look to anything else to be for you what I have already shown you that I am. And he, he invites them into this place of fidelity to him alone. And not only does he define that relationship, but he also lays out for them the consequences of what happens if they will be faithful or if they will not be faithful. And we see it in a book later in the book of Leviticus in chapter 26. And I want to read this together because ultimately it's going to set the stage for us to understand the revivals of the Old Testament and the, and the rhythms and the cycles of how the people of God would often turn from God, what they would experience and how ultimately that would lead them back to a place of, of God using difficulty and hardship of bringing them back to himself. This is what it says in Leviticus chapter 26. It says, do not make idols or set up an image or a sacred stone for yourselves and do not place a carved stone in your land to bow down before it. I am the Lord your God. Verse three, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will send you rain in its season and the ground will yield its crops and the trees their fruit. Your threshing will continue until grape harvest and the grape harvest will continue until uh, planting and you will eat all the food you want and live in safety. In your land, and I will grant you peace in the land, and you will lie down, and no one will make you afraid. I will look on you with favor, and I will make you fruitful and increase your numbers, and I will keep my covenant with you. You will still be eating last year's harvest when you have to move it out to make room for the new, and I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. Verse 14 But if you will not listen to me, and carry out all these commands. And if you reject my decrees and abhor my laws and fail to carry out all my commands and so violate my covenant, and then I will do this to you. 
I will bring on you sudden terror, wasting diseases and fever that will destroy your sight and sap your strength. You will plant seed in vain because your enemies will eat it. I will set my face against you so that you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you and you will flee even when no one is pursuing you. For faithfulness to God, their husband, to God, their father, to God, Yahweh, the one true God, the one who rescues, saves, delivers, and restores. He promises life, prosperity, peace, fertility, victory, abundance, and success. He's saying, I actually, I, it is in my heart. My heart is full of love for you, and I want to bless you. I want to do good by you. I want to see you walk in the fullness of life. I want to see you walk in the fullness of blessing. My desire has always been to have a relationship with, my, with people who will live in faithfulness towards me and therefore receive the blessing of God and so reveal the glory of God to the world. Because when you walk under my hand of favor and blessing, all the other nations are going to look to you and they're going to wonder, what makes you so special? What makes you so different? Why do you experience such abundant life? Why do you always have victory, even though your armies are always smaller? Why are you always winning all the time? Why does it seem like you always have enough food to eat and you keep having children and children and your generations go on from one to the next? What is it about you that's different? And they will be able to point to and say, Yahweh, he's what's different. We worship the one true God. And therefore, the, the glory that God is that revealed through the blessing of God is meant to be an invitation to all nations to be drawn unto him. And the same is true for us today, church. God wants to bless us. He wants us to walk in his favor as we, as we honor him and are faithful to him and have fidelity towards him in our covenant relationship, though it looks different today than it did of old. He's, he wants to, the, his, his presence and his, his goodness and his favor to rest upon us that we would walk in his blessing and that we would therefore be a walking invitation to the world and say, this is what life really looks like. Do you want life? Well, come and worship this God. Everything else that you're worshiping is not gonna lead to this. This is where life is found. And so he said, this is the, the blessing I wanna give you, but, but if you... If you fail to honor me and if you fail to look to me and if you fail to put your trust in me and if you cheat on me, and that's how he describes it, if you cheat on me with other gods, then this is what you'll experience. Death, disease, disgrace, despair, dearth, deportation. All of this as discipline at the hand of God. And all, his desire in that is to wake his people up and ultimately allow them to see and recognize the error of their ways so that they would, their hearts would be revived again, so that they would come back to him. And that's actually where we pick up this story with Josiah, because the, those who came before Josiah were those who, what the Bible says, what the Chronicle, Second Chronicle says, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They facilitated, they promoted, they allowed false worship in their land. And because of that, they themselves experienced discipline at God's hand, but also God promised an even further coming destruction that they would experience. And so when Josiah steps into the scene, he's inheriting, he's inheriting the sins of, of the consequences that come from the sins of the past. And he's saying, not so with me. Not, not, not with me. Not for me and my reign and not for my people. No, no more. And we will turn from the wicked ways of the past and we will turn again to the Lord we will turn, turn again to Yahweh. And so the turning from idols is very much, a, 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 very much part of the Old Testament narrative. And the turning from idols is very much an expression of us having a revived heart. 
we know that our hearts are revived. We know that our hearts are renewed with passionate devotion when we are looking to, to get rid of things in our life that are going to be stumbling blocks and keeping us from our passionate pursuit of him. I remember when I was, I first gave my life to the Lord and surrendered my life to him my freshman year of college. Everything that I had tried up until that point had disappointed me, had left me to a place of feeling empty and lost. And when I experienced God's presence for the first time, it was like drinking from a, a fountain of water. I just, like the most refreshing water that you have ever tasted in your entire life. And I was like, I have before me now life and death. I know what it's like to not have God. And I know what it's like to have God. And I'm choosing this. This is what I want. I don't want this, any of this anymore. And so I just began to turn over every rock and every stone and every leaf in my life and said, whatever was, what I, was part of my former life is no more. And I, my mom was like, what, you know, what's wrong with you? I'm like, mom, I'm turning over a new leaf. She's like, you're turning over the whole branch. Like she was like, and I, and I even, I, I was a big movie watcher and I love to, to, to watch movies. I love stories. And I had like this, you know, movie collection of about a hundred movies. And I just started giving them all away, selling them, some stuff that was junk, I just started throwing away. I just purged it and said, I don't want this in my life anymore. I have found life. All of my energy, all of my attention, all of my focus is going to be pursuing this fountain that never ceases to run dry. Pursuing this fountain that never stops satisfying and satisfying and satisfying again and again. The rhythm of revival is very much so God turning his hearts uh, the, of his people back to himself. And as a response to that, ridding our lives of the things that we no longer need, things that would keep us from more of him. And I want to look at uh, what, um, what Josiah did here because, and, 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 sp and some of the specifics of, of how he got rid of the idols and, and, and the idols themselves because I believe it's going to be significant in leading us towards how we can respond here this morning. Um, at first, it says that Josiah removed the high places. Now, the high places were just as what they sound. They were high places up atop hills or mountains. And those were the places where that when you practice idolatry, you, where the statues would be and you'd go to worship. The belief being that the closer that you were to the heavens the more likely it was that that God would hear you and want to respond and, and would respond to the thing that you're asking him for. And so Josiah said that is a symbolic representation of a false form of worship. Those places are places where the, the hearts of the Israelites turn from God. So we're doing away with those places. Those places are no more. That's him turning over every stern. The New Testament speaks and calls believers to not even have a hint, not even a hint of immorality, this is Josiah's version of that. I don't even want a hint of this. I don't even want those places to be in existence anymore. We're tearing those down. The second thing I want to highlight on that is the difference between Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, and every other God. Every other God said, go up to the high places and, and perform your worship up there. And maybe, maybe I'll give you what you're looking for. Jump up and down and wave your arms and commit all these sacrifices to try to get our attention so that we'll bless you. The God of Israel is completely different. He doesn't make us climb up top the mountain and, and hopes to get his attention. He actually wants to dwell among us. He wants to live among us. He actually had a, had a dwelling place and he actually, it describes him at, as his house. And he wanted to have fellowship and friendship with his people in his house. God is not a guy most high who keeps himself at a distance. He's a God who draws near. 
And ultimately we see that in the coming of Jesus. The, the God most high, though he is most highly exalted, did not consider equality with something to be grasped. Instead, he said, I will come to earth and I will show you that I'm a God who's committed to you and I have fidelity towards you and I draw near to you. And even when you fail and make mistakes, it's not like you fall down the ladder and have to try to climb yourself back up again. Even when you fall down, I meet you there. And we together with, in friendship and intimacy, we continue on the journey. It also says that he, um, Josiah, he tore down the, the Asherah poles and he cut down the altars of Baal. Now, Baal was a, um, a male fertility god who was thought to and believed to bring the rain from heaven. And Asherah was believed also a fertility goddess. And it was believed that she was the one who opened up the earth in order to, to be able to allow the, um, there to be fertility in the ground, that there could be vegetation, there could be, there could be crops, um, there could be life. And, and not only that, but also to bring fertility to, to women so that they, they, could, they could bear children. And so these gods were often worshiped in tandem through, um, through different types of sacrifices and through shameful practices, some of them kind of sexual in nature. And with the belief being that Baal would bring the life-giving rain from heaven and that Asherah would open up the earth and allow the crops to grow. And if we think about that for a second, we think about what the Israelites were tempted and, and not just tempted, what they did look to those gods for. And we think about what God himself said he wanted to be for them. We recognize the true nature of idolatry. They were looking to those gods to bring rain and to bring crops and to bring, and to bring life. He, they were looking to them to be the gods of life. And God has already said and declared, I am the God of life. What did it say in Leviticus 26? If you will be faithful to me, I will bring the rain in a season. I will bring the abundance of crops. When you are still finishing up last year's harvest, you have to get rid of it because I'm bringing in something new. I want you to experience life and prosperity. And so therein lies the definition of idolatry, putting someone or something else in the place that only God belongs to find that which only God can give. Putting someone or something in, only, in the place where only God belongs to find that which only God can give. That's what they were doing. They were looking to these things to be for them when God said, I will be this for you. I will be this for you. And so then the question kind of comes to us of what about us? What is the idolatry in, in our world, in, in our space that we wrestle with, that we deal with? And some of you may say, well, Andy, you're talking about that. You're saying a revived heart is expressed through getting rid of idols, but it's not like I have Asherah poles in my backyard. You know, it's not like I have altars of Baal in my den. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Well, I'd love for us to, to turn to Ezekiel chapter 14 because it reveals to us that idolatry is not first and foremost something that we do externally. It's actually first and foremost something that we do in our hearts. Ezekiel chapter 14, verses one through six, it says this. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. Not just physical idols, but they've set up idols in their hearts and they put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I, should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts, 
and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to a prophet. I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. And I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Idolatry is an issue of the heart. What do we look to with our hearts? What do we trust in with our hearts? What in our hearts do we do in, in ways with our hearts do we put God in a place where or something in a place where only God belongs? It's in our hearts. And the truth is that that whatever that thing may be, whatever that that temptation or whatever that that um, false hope or whatever that um, whatever the offer is that's being extended to you, if we choose to give ourselves to it and put that thing in that place, it's dishonoring and displeasing to the Lord. He's dishonored and displeased. I, I love what it says. It says it in Jeremiah chapter two, verses 11 through 13, it says this, has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all, amen. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. God is dishonored and he's displeased when we put anything in the place where only he belongs. He's, dis he's dishonored because it's not true. With our worship, whatever we look to, whatever we put our trust in, we are making an implicit declaration that that thing is supreme, that that thing offers something that, that can supply something for us. But the truth is there's nothing more supreme than God. There's no other name that's exalted higher than his name. And so for us to put something else there is actually, it's dishonoring to him because it's not in alignment and agreement with truth. It's not in alignment and agreement with who he is and what he has declared things to be. And he's also displeased because he sees how empty it is. It's like building a broken cistern. A cistern was something that was used to collect water. To collect water, the water, the symbol of life. If a cistern is broken, it actually cannot hold any water. The promises of this world do not hold any water. The rain comes down and it seeps right out. You think it's gonna be great, but it disappoints in the end. And he's displeased because he sees the, the foolishness and the folly of, of, and the waywardness of those choices. And he sees the pain that sin creates, not only for us, but for people around us. He, he sees the, the, the languish that we experience when we, we, we kind of, when we go wayward and we lose our way. And he's displeased. He's saying, I actually, I don't want you to do that. I, I want you to, to come to me. I want you to look to me. Don't look anywhere else. What are those things in our lives that vie for our, atten our attention and our affection and our allegiance? What are the things that are trying to work their way into that place, into that most high place in our hearts? And there could be anything, really anything can become an idol. Certainly there are evil things, even good things that we make supreme things can become idols. So we have to be careful. We have to guard our hearts. 
say, actually, I only want one to sit on the throne of my life. I'm only gonna let King Jesus sit on that throne of my heart. It's only, there's only room for one and I'm, I'm reserving it and preserving it for him. And we all may have different things that we wrestle with. I, I sense that God is has inviting us to consider three of them here this morning. Three idols that given our world and the day that we live in are, are vying for our attention, our allegiance. And those are success, stimulation, and self. When we look to success and to achievement and the things that we can do with our own hands and the money that we can earn for ourselves in order to purchase the possessions that would give be those status symbols that we have arrived in order and, or, develop, developing a reputation or a name for ourselves through the things that we're able to accomplish. We are looking to success to provide for us that which only God can provide, which is identity, value, and worth. Those things are only found from our creator. Value and worth come from the one who made us, not from anything that we achieve or not from any reputation that we build for us in the eyes of other people. But consider how many lives, how many families, how many spouses, how many children have been sacrificed on the altar of success in hopes to find the thing that only God can give. And I'm not, church, hear me, I'm not saying success is inherently evil. I believe that success is, is part of the favor of God's hand of blessing upon us. And I want our church to be filled with high achievers and, and those who succeed in different spheres of life and business and medicine and education and, and entertainment and sports. I, because those who are, succeed in this world are able to rise up into places of influence in this world. And the influencers are those who shape culture in the direction of where society is going. So yes, I want Jesus people and kingdom people to succeed so that we can move in a Godward direction so that we can turn this thing around and move back into a place where our society has a Godward orientation. I believe success is a beautiful thing that God wants to give, but we cannot. We cannot seek success the same way the world does. How can we make much of God if we seek success the same way the world does because we would be making much of ourselves? How can we be offering a hope to the world by, by, by putting something as an idol in our lives and, and saying, we're basically declaring, you can look to this as well, but, it, but they shouldn't and they ought not to. The only thing we wanna point people to, to find life, to be that, that river of life, the, 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 the fountain of life, the river of delights is Jesus. He is the one who be, ought to be most exalted in the way that we go about living and the way that we pursue success. Stimulation. Because of innovations and technological advancements, there are so many things that we can access inst instantaneously now. And because of that, we have become in some ways hardwired to prefer instantaneous payoffs and quick fixes. And through that, we have lost our discipline to be able to pursue and spend time in a relational way with God and His presence. And when we, ha we feel this gape inside of us, I wanna feel something and I wanna feel something good, we so quickly look to a device or we look to a screen or we look to something that we can feel and feel right now. But ultimately, consider this, how many relationships, how, how much time, how many productive opportunities, 
have been sacrificed on the altar of stimulation in, in pursuit of the thing that God said he wants to give us, which is satisfaction and fullness of life. And I'm not saying that our devices, our technology is inherently bad. I'm just saying that it's one of those dangers that wants to seep in to our world and to captivate our attention, our allegiance, where we give ourselves fully to that. When God is saying, actually, the thing that you're looking for there, you can actually find in me right here. And finally, self. You've heard me share on this before, but because we, we live in a world where everyone can have a platform, I think one of the dangers of that is that we have put a disproportionate amount of weight and authority on our own opinions, thoughts, and ideas. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have opinions and thoughts and ideas. I think we should just carry those with gentleness and humility that we don't know everything. I'll say it like this, I'm not qualified. I'm finite, he is infinite. I'm limited, he is limitless. He has the perspective to be able to find what is good and not good, what is right and wrong, and what ultimately leads to life. I am not qualified to do that. But when we put ourselves on that altar, I, when we, I'm sorry, when we put ourselves in that place, that there are things that we sacrifice on that altar. Our, our, uh, we, we sacrifice relationships. We actually, in so many ways, sacrifice our own well-being because we become the Lord of our own lives, but we don't know how to lead ourselves. And so we end up leading ourselves into, into emptiness and despair. How many times have we sacrificed our own good for the sake of feeling control and the sake of feeling freedom? Freedom is not found by us laying hold to his throne. It, it, it is found by us surrendering to him as he sits on his throne. We surrender to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and that is where true freedom is found. Whatever it may be, church, let's be those who with a responsive heart like Josiah Let's be those who aggressively and tenaciously deal with idols in our lives. It may be none of the ones that I mentioned, that, and that's fine. It may be something else that God is quickening your heart and stirring your heart now about. Let's aggressively deal with those idols, things, stumbling blocks, things in our hearts that we would look to, trust in, hope in. Let's be vigilant against the, the empty promises and the, and the things that are vying for our allegiance. And in, in the same spirit of Josiah, let's be those who, who properly return to the place of worship where we exalt God and, and live in alignment with his supremacy. That the way we live our lives and the way that we worship is in agreement, in alignment with his ultimate supremacy. God, we, we come to you now with... With, with responsive hearts, with tender hearts. And we, we say that we're sorry for any ways that we have allowed idols to creep in. And we thank you now for your word and we thank you for leading us back to a place where we, are, where we, we, we can reclaim and restore true and proper worship in our lives, where we look to you and you alone. Draw us back to that. Draw us back to that singular focus where you become the, the thing that we care about most, the thing that we want most, that we seek after most. With responsive hearts, Lord, we, we lay those idols down. Be the king of our hearts once again. Be the king of our hearts once again, for that is your rightful place.
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to, to stand with me. And we're going to move now into a time of response. And I invite our ministry team to come forward and go ahead and stand off to the sides and be, make yourselves available for prayer. If God is stirring you and you want to pray with somebody, I encourage you to find one of them and, and to share with them what's going on. Invite them into your world. Let them pray with you. But I want to reserve this space here in front as we have in the past several weeks as an altar unto the Lord. And as we think about the different, the different gods that we have worshipped, the different Baals and Asherahs in our lives and the different things we have sacrificed on those altars, I believe the Lord is inviting us now to, to turn for those things. And instead of putting something else on the altar, that we put ourselves on the altar. Romans 12 says, present yourselves as a living sacrifice unto God. This is your true and proper worship. And so if God has, has, has been stirring you through his word this morning and you're feeling the, the conviction of God, the leadership of God, where you recognize that you have, there's things that you need to do business with, I just invite you now to start coming forward. And this space is available for us to, to lay down those things and to present ourselves before God and say, God, my heart is yours. I look to you. I trust you. My hope is in you. So whatever it may be, whatever idol it is that you find yourself wrestling with, whatever thing that you recognize, I know that that's something that I can sometimes give myself to. Come forward now and let this be a time of, of God reviving our hearts, reclaiming our hearts, bring us back into a place of wholehearted givenness to Him. Let's stay here in this moment of worship and let's give Him the proper worship that He deserves, a worship that declares that He is supreme and exalted above all. Let's worship him together with hearts of surrender and with hearts of repentance and with hearts of pure devotion to him and to him alone. Let's respond together as our team leads us.